can be assured that we indeed are in the right path in our lives, that we have made the right commitments, that we have gathered with uh, the right congregation in the right place. And I don't mean particularly in this congregation as opposed to one down the street, but I mean more broadly and more generally. How do we know that we are indeed in the truth and walking in the light? And one of the, these questions has to do with trust. See, John is writing a letter where he's encouraging these Christians who are struggling with challenges, and he's, he's trying to assure them, and he's trying to encourage them. And one of the questions is, how, how do we know that we can trust John? How do, we know, how do the, these early Christians know that they can trust him over and against these false teachers who have arisen in their midst and who have gone out and uh, led some in their train? And uh, I suggested to you in the first week that one of the ways in which we know that we can trust John is because he demonstrates in this text his affection, his love, his uh, concern, his, his real fatherly concern for these Christians. That he's not just somebody who's puffed up with knowledge and has a lot of information but doesn't really care about their lives and their situation, but he's one who truly cares and truly loves them. And yet... It seems to be the case that throughout this letter up until this point, most of the teaching has been uh, very much about head knowledge, very much about what you know and, and how you can discern. It, it, it could come across as somewhat impersonal. There's a few places where we see John showing his affection. For instance, at the beginning of chapter 2, he addresses this church as my little children. And then in verse 7, he uses the word beloved to address them. But by and large, it could come across as quite impersonal. After all, at the beginning of this epistle, we didn't even find a greeting like we would find in Paul's letters. But in the text that we come to tonight, what we're going to see is a shift in John's tone and his tenor. As, he, as if he's caught up in that reality and suddenly becomes very emotional as he thinks about the church to whom he's writing. And he writes things that aren't difficult for us to understand. They're straightforward and they're simple things, and yet he feels it, he, he senses the need to remind this church, these Christians, of these truths. He senses the need to remind them in a way that is intensely personal. So if you found your place with me in 1 John chapter 2, would you follow along as I read simply verses 12 through 14? I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Father in heaven, we come to you this evening and we ask that you would inscribe these truths upon our heart. They are simple, they are straightforward truths, and yet they are profound and, and uh, immensely important. Important enough that your servant John saw fit to write them and then write them all over again here in the midst of this letter. And so we know that, Lord, it is your intent that we should hear them not once but twice in a row, and so we pray that in hearing them twice and the repetition that you would, you would impress them upon our minds, and that you would cause us to go from this place 
with full assurance that these things indeed are true, that we can know that we are forgiven, that we can know that we know you, that we can know that we have indeed overcome the evil one, not by our own strength, but by your grace and through your Son. So we pray in his name. Amen. Well, one commentator has referred to this as the letter's greeting, and it, it is an odd place for a greeting if, it, if we are to take it in that way. You see, if you were to turn over, for example, to Philippians or Romans, you see that the way in which people wrote letters back in this early time in history is that they began with, uh, with a personal address where they named themselves and then they named who they were writing to, and they wrote something about themselves and they wrote something about those who, to whom they were writing. And so we see, for example, in Paul's letters, he'll sometimes introduce himself as a servant, and sometimes he'll introduce himself as an apostle, and sometimes in other ways. And then he'll address the church to whom he's writing, and he'll say things like, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll oftentimes say quite a bit more, showing his affection, telling them how he prays for them, showing that he indeed cares for this church, that he loves this church. But we don't see anything like that here in 1 John, at least not at the very beginning of 1 John. John simply begins with those words that we recall, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Again, it's not as if John is simply being impersonal here. If we look down in verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that there is a very personal purpose for his writing of this letter. He says he's writing these things to this church to you that we, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John desires fellowship with this church. And yet, from there, after chapter 4, I'm sorry, after verse 4 in chapter 1, we see a lot of instruction that can come across as impersonal and even maybe a bit harsh. Here's the message. This is not the message. This is how we know that we are in Christ. This is how we know we're not. This is how we know we're walking in the light. This is how we know we don't. If you were to imagine, for instance, going to a class and listening to a professor who taught in this way where he simply listed point after point after point didactically giving his information, just one point after another, with no engagement, you might withdraw from that and say, he doesn't really care about us. He just cares about the knowledge, about the information. If we were to conclude that about John, we would be wrong. And it's as if John senses that he needs to make this very clear. And so he addresses them here as if this is the greeting of the letter. And in this place, he declares to them why he's writing to them. And he piles up terms of endearment. Notice how he addresses them. I am writing to you little children. And again, in verse 13 in the second half, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. He addresses these Christians as his children, as though he's their spiritual father. And this first term of little children, and then the corollary term, children, these two terms are affectionate. They refer to all of the Christians to whom he's writing. They're blanket terms that refer to every one of them. That in some sense, they are all John's spiritual children, and he is their spiritual father. He is the one who has shepherded them. He is the one who's guided them. And he speaks to them with that kind of fatherly affection. I think of the way that sometimes I 
might speak to my own children. And I address them in a loving way when I want to encourage them, when I want to exhort them, when I want to guide them in the way that they should go. I don't simply come alongside and shout to them as though I'm some dictator. Sometimes I might, but I also come alongside as a father. I want to come along, along uh, with them and, and show them that I love them and that the counsel that I give them and the instruction that I give them comes from my fatherly love. And that's what we see John doing here for this church. He addresses these Christians with the affection of a father. I'm writing to you little children, and I write to you fathers. In his second term, set of terms, though, that he uses to address them where he says, I'm writing to you fathers, and then I'm writing to you young men. Here, there's a separation. Here he addresses two groups within this larger subset. And he calls them fathers and young men. That is, he, he's addressing those who are older in this congregation, who really are older, not just a spiritual elderliness, but those who are older in their midst. And he's also addressing those who are younger. One commentator puts it this way, to appeal to Christians as fathers was to evoke their sense of responsibility and their humble yet lofty privilege under the father par excellence. This commentator explains that in our own day, being a dad has come on hard times. The idea of being a father is ridiculed in the media. It's not, we don't respect that vocation anymore broadly as a society. But at this time when John was writing, to be a father was, was to, to engage responsibility, to come into your own, to, to, to be respected in your society. It was one of the first stages of demonstrating that you were a trustworthy and responsible person. And so with this term, John appeals to that sense of responsibility, particularly in the older men. We need to also understand that John is not just addressing men. He's addressing all in the church, right? He uses the, the masculine language in the same way that, uh, that when, well, people fight against this nowadays, but in the same way that when we use the word someone and then we use a pronoun with it, we, we default to the masculine, he. And this is the way that people would speak in the first century, and until very recently, this is the way that we all have spoken. And uh, in fact, and when, I was, when I was in 11th grade, I remember my, my English teacher standing up, and she said, I am an ardent feminist, but when you say someone goes to the store and you use a pronoun, you use the word he, because it just sounds right. It's just the way that we speak. And uh, there's no sense in which one is trying to exclude, in which John is trying to exclude women from this address. He's addressing the whole church, men and women together. And yet he uses this language of fatherhood. He uses the language of young men too. And here again, he appeals to something that is peculiar to young men. And yet we can address these instructions broadly to all the youth, all the young people in the church. Not just children, but, but anyone who's youthful. Myself included. And here, John... Uh, we, we, quoting the comment, a commentator again, he says, John most likely appeals to the promise and spiritual vitality of believers who are relatively new on the scene of Christian faith, yet capable of great things by virtue of their developmental level. This afternoon, talking with a, uh, a boy in our church, I encouraged him to pursue his uh, interest in chess. And I told him, if you keep doing it and keep playing chess, by the time you're my age, you'll be far better at chess than I am now. You see, there's, there's a way we recognize that there's promise in youth, that there's possibility. And it seems to be that that is what John is 
uh, appealing to when he speaks to the young men. Their potential to, to, to be great and faithful believers. To live a life that is honorable and trustworthy before the Lord. And so he addresses this church with these terms of endearment that also appeal to certain virtues that he wants to draw out from them. He addresses them as his little children. He addresses them as fathers. He addresses them as young men. There's ultimately one group, the whole church. And yet, and then it's divided there into those two groups. Now, having a, understood who John is writing to and who he's address, addressing, we also need to ask ourselves, why is he writing this? I mean, that's the whole point. That's what the, the, the phrase that he repeats again. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. Three times. And then a shift. The same words, but a shift in the tense. I write to you. I write to you. I write to you. Three more times. This is all about why is John writing. And the simple answer is this. He's writing to encourage these believers. He's writing to encourage them by reminding them of the things that are true in their lives. And we need these kinds of reminders. We need these kinds of reminders from, from older and faithful Christians, from those who have shepherded us, from those who have guided us, from those who have encouraged us in the past. We need that kind of encouragement again. We need to be reminded of the things that we know. Because though they may be simple and straightforward and we learn them and have learned them and have heard them time and time again. We are prone to forget them. Not in the sense that we've forgotten all about them. But we forget that these things are true in our lives. That they are true for us. This is why John is writing. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The fundamental thing that unites us as a people that has brought us into fellowship with one another and in fellowship with a triune God is the very fact that God has forgiven us of our sins. And the basis for that forgiveness, the reason he has forgiven us, is because of the things that Christ has done for us. That is what John means when he says you're forgiven for his name's sake. That this phrase, it stands in as a reference for all that Christ is and all that he has done. Very often in the Old Testament, people would appeal to the name of the Lord. For example, in Genesis 12, 8, we read, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And we see similar phrases throughout the book of Isaiah. John Oswald says that the name of the Lord, it stood for his reputation, for what he was known for, his character and his attributes. That's what it means to say that we are forgiven for his name's sake. That, that is, we are forgiven, it stands in for all that Christ is and all that he has done. Because of who he is, because he went to the cross, because he died for our sins. We are forgiven. And we need to be reminded of this truth. We know, in terms of a, uh, informational fact, we know what the gospel proclaims, that Christ died for sins, that God raised him from the dead, that all who trust in him and receive him by faith are forgiven of their sins. But we need to know that that's a personal reality in our lives. We need to know that we are forgiven because though we know that to be true in terms of what the gospel proclaims, when we reflect on our lives, 
When we are overwhelmed with shame over our sin and over our unbelief and over all the things that we have done, the temptation is to say, well, maybe forgiveness is for someone else. Maybe it's not really for me. But when we think about what John has been writing to this point, we see that he believes in his teaching that we can indeed know that we are forgiven. Recall verse 7 of chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as, we, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And again in verse 9, we read this together as a church this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who walk in the light, those who confess their sins, they are indeed forgiven, for God is faithful to do it. And John wants this church to know and us to know. We need to know that this is true for us. If we've trusted in him, we are indeed forgiven. And nothing can change that. Not anything in our past can change that. Because the basis for our forgiveness is not in ourselves. It's for his name's sake. It's the central truth, the fundamental truth that unites us as a people in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with God. John also is writing, and here he addresses the Father specifically, saying, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Here again, we remember the things that John has already written. With these, these first two admonitions and exhortations, John points us backwards to things that he's written, and we recall the way that this letter began. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And here he says to them, using that same language, you know him who was from the beginning. That is, you know the one who was made manifest. You know Christ. And again, if you look back to the beginning of chapter 2, there in verse 3, you see that this idea is so important in John's thought. The idea of knowing Christ and knowing God. In verse 3 of chapter 2, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. John is concerned to identify those who do know God and those who do not. And he wants these believers to whom he's writing to know, you do know him. So he's writing to them. Not because that's true. The, 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 the word because, the translation is a little bit odd. It's, uh, it has that sense of that. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that you know the Father. I'm telling you that your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you because I want you to know, in other words, that your sins are forgiven. And I, I'm writing to you because I want you to know that you know the Father. Right? I'm not giving you reasons and, 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 and words that are meant to cause you to doubt and be discouraged. I'm giving you instruction that's meant to encourage you and to help you know that you indeed are in Christ. So he's writing to them that they might know him who is from the beginning. That they know, you see. He's also writing to the young men because they've overcome the evil one. Because indeed they 
have triumphed over Satan and over his schemes. Not to encourage them to do it as if it's an uncertainty. But rather to say that you have done this. You have overcome the evil one. And this too is something that we need to be encouraged in. I think especially of young men. On the one hand, we think of young men who might, they might be full of vigor. And this, of course, again, applies to all young people. Full of strength and vigor and full of optimism and, and hope. And yet, at the same time, filled with uncertainty. Filled with uh, questions about their lives. And filled with all kinds of, um, all kinds of uh, doubts. Wondering if they can accomplish the things that are before them. Wondering if they can ever amount to anything. Both things are true of young people. And here John writes, again like a father, to encourage these young men, saying, you have overcome the evil one. The greatest enemy of God's people. You've overcome him. And if that's true, then certainly you can persevere in faith. Certainly you can endure any hardship, any trial, any persecution that might come your way. And as this letter unfolds, we're going to see that John speaks a great deal about overcoming the evil one and various ways in which they will do it. And some of his words are challenging. Some of his words are striking. And here as he looks forward in the letter, no longer looking past, he wants them to know it's already true. I write to you that you have overcome the evil one. We have to go through this again because John goes through it twice. Oftentimes commentaries will treat it all together. After commenting on verse 13, for instance, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. When they come then to verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. They note the change in verb tense and they say, see my comments on verse 13. And that's certainly helpful in terms of the grammar, but it would also be helpful to ask this question and answer this question. Why does John write it twice? Why does he make a point of these things? It's so important to remind these Christians. It's so important that we are reminded of these truths in our lives. But there's also something uh, uh, in this change of verb tense. I don't want to press too much meaning into it. It's probably not, John probably did not sit back and pull out his Greek grammar and flip through it and say, now how can I express, uh, express uh, the thought that I'm saying with a very, with, with precision? But rather, it was probably just a very natural way of writing that this is what came to him to, to shift in this tense. And what you see is in the first half of, uh, in these first three exhortations, it's, it's almost emotional. It, it's almost as if he's, he really wants them to know how important this is. And all of his love and affection is coming out for them. And I think of sometimes the way my own father would sometimes call me and he would leave a voicemail for me and it wasn't really much of anything, just kind of a rambling, uh, rambling thoughts that he, were coming to his mind and yet it was clear to me he really just wanted to talk to me. He really just wanted to let me know he was thinking about me. There's an emotion in that. And in the shift then here, as John shifts tenses, he also begins to elaborate a little bit more on some of these points, not in too much detail, but he draws them out a little bit more and in so doing, is, takes a more reflective stance. Okay, I, I wrote to you in an emotional way, if you will. I, now let me write to you in a rather reflective way. 
So he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Indeed, they've been forgiven of all their sins, and they also need to know that they, they do know the Father. And the two things are related. They go together. The reason they know the Father and are known by the Father is because their sins are forgiven. And again, he says to the, to the, the same thing to the fathers, I write to you fathers, because you know who him who is from the beginning. Sometimes think with, with, older, uh, with older believers, we don't have to repeat ourselves quite so much. or We don't have to, to put it a different way and draw everything out. They just need a little bit of encouragement. Their faith is strong. Their faith is well-founded. John doesn't need to elaborate anymore. They know. They've been around. They just need a little bit of a reminder, a little encouragement. So he says the same thing here. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And again to the young man, the men, this is where he draws it out the most and he elaborates on it the most. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Here he takes that last idea that you have overcome the evil one and he gives them the reasons why this is true in them. They are strong, but here it's not physical strength that is their strength. It's spiritual strength and that spiritual strength is rooted in the fact the word of God abides in them. Again, the means matter. Just as our forgiveness is for it, it, our forgiveness is for his name's sake, on account of what Christ has done for us, so too our strength is not rooted in ourselves. It's rooted in the word of God implanted in us. And here John says to the young men, God's word abides in you. You've held it fast, and that's proof, to use the, the language of the parable of the sower that we studied this morning, that you are good soil, and the fruit has been implanted, the seed has been implanted in you, and it's grown up and become fruitful in you. The Word of God abides in you, and you're strong, and that's the reason why you have overcome the evil one. John will come back to this theme of overcoming the evil one later on in this text. He says this in verse 8 of chapter 3, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And again in chapter 4, verse 4, he returns to that same theme. And he says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You see, the reason why we can overcome and have overcome the, the evil one, the reason why we have and will overcome his schemes is because God is the one who works in us. He works in us through his word. He works in us through Christ. And Christ already has conquered. The reason he has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil, John says. And therefore we know that we too can overcome all his schemes. For we already have, in Christ and through his word, overcome the evil one. So these three encouragements John brings to our mind that we are forgiven, that we know our triune God, the Father and the Son, and that we are strong in the word and therefore have overcome the evil one. These things 
He brings to our minds and informs us of their truth in us if we are in Christ. Forms this church of their truth in them. Because it's so important for them to remember it. Though it's easy to understand, it's also easy to forget. We need reminders like this. We need fatherly encouragement. We need to encourage one another with words like this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word indeed encourages us. It gives us light. It gives us strength. Through your word we conquer. Through your son we overcome. Because he has overcome for us. Most importantly, he has conquered sin and death for us by giving his life in our place on the cross that we might have life forevermore. Father, we pray that you would make us to know these truths, not merely in this intellectual way. We know, yes, of course, we are forgiven, but that we really know it in our inner being, that we would know the truth of it all, that indeed we are forgiven, that we indeed know you and are known by you, that we indeed are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.